Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Malk. And I'm Paige Wallace. And it's finally here, our book club episode. (laughs) We are discussing, as we've mentioned previously, approaches to teaching Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale and other works, edited by Sharon R. Wilson, Thomas B. Friedman, and Shannon Hengen. Um, I was trying to see who published it, which I should know, but it's left my brain. Um, Oh, MLA. Yes. In 1996. That's important that 1996, because that um, last uh, book she had written was The Robber Bride, which is mentioned somewhat extensively in this collection. That was released 1993. Alias Grace comes out in 1996, not mentioned at all. Blind Assassin, Orcs and Crate, The Penelope Ad, um, Year of the Flood. Those are the big ones I feel like I'd heard of without yeah. looking into. Well, and Mad Adam is like part of the a year of the flood, like same yeah. world. Um, and then, of course, the Testaments mm-hmm. in 2019, which is part of the Handmaid's Tale sort of world. Yeah, it would be interesting. I was about to say an interesting on a class on like unneeded sequels with like her that that and um, <laughs> Ghost at a Watchman and other things. But we'll save that for later. <laughs> Yeah, I just noted that it was 1996 because I wanted to say that students currently are referring to, you know, the 90s as the late 1900s. That's hurtful. Yeah, so I felt like you should have that information, Margaret. Yeah, I I, I hate that I have that information, (laughs) but thank you. Okay, so let's start uh, with a little bit of like our reactions to this anthology. Okay, so as someone who's interested in Margaret Atwood, I found it interesting. I like, I enjoyed reading some of their theories, some of their lenses. I liked getting that context. As someone interested in pedagogy, it was more highs and lows it was sometimes less satisfying. Um, I sometimes had in my marginal notes, like explain more, how, that it sometimes felt like critical interpretation, scholarly work with nods to students woven in of, you'll want your students to focus on blank or students will need to address blah, blah, blah. But it's really was just through the lens of the, the writer's own scholarly pursuits. Um, so those were times where I was writing like, well, how do you get students to notice that? How do you get students to engage with that? It, I wanted it pushed a little bit further. Some of the essays did great. Like they provided questions, assignments, kind of possible roadblocks. And I found all that really helpful. So overall like a b i give it (laughs) what about you yeah so i agree i think that um there are definitely parts of the anthology that are not student centered or focused uh and but i didn't dislike those parts like you said as a person interested in teaching at wood i think that even in those essays that were more like critical responses to Atwood's work I felt like 
for me as a as someone trying interested in teaching the material they work to orient me like sometimes when you're teaching i think especially when you're teaching as new text like new to you text um you haven't taught before you're in that process like in, in the actual teaching you start to see the patterns that were always part of your planning, but maybe you hadn't fleshed out as well as you could have. And as you're teaching through it, you're like, oh, yes, that's it. That That's my connection. That's my thread that's taking me from point A to B to C. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so as a text, I think that it definitely does a lot of work in fleshing out like all of the this massive body of work um, and all of this sort of like web of connections within it. Um, And so for me, using this text to kind of parse through like, okay, how do I see this theme running through her works? How do I see these ideas? This is great. But the practical application to students is still like a, a B minus. I, I might be with the B minus rather than the B. Um, I just, I think I wanted more emphasis on the teaching and approaches to teaching Atwood. It a lot of time felt just like it was approaches to Atwood. Yeah. Um, and I just needed that step further. And I didn't need to like overhaul the essays, just like maybe a, a page extra in some of them to like fully explain. Um how what assignments they used what the objectives were why Atwood or why this specific text over one of her other texts um even just like class discussions because a lot of times they would the writers would talk about oh and then you can um have your students discuss and it would be an overarching like theme or concept I was like, but how do you get your students <laughs> to discuss that? Like, it's really easy to say you would use class discussion to have your students figure out blank. And if it, if blank is something specific, like have a class discussion using this passage to discuss dialogue, mm-hmm. to discuss the construction of gender roles via nature symbolism yeah I can figure out my own discussion questions but if it's just oh you can have your students discuss gender well that's pretty broad like how are you seeing it specifically in this way that your students are coming to these conclusions and I think that yes and that a lot of what we got here in the teaching part was making the assumption that we would be doing lecture we would yeah. be lecturing or you know having a class discussion that was largely led by the instructor or the professor mm-hmm. yeah it seemed like you would need pointed questions or a lot of um slides that you were showing your students and yeah. asking sort of the yes or no questions But some of the activities I really liked um like there was the activity of um having them bring in a perfume ad and a cologne ad and Uh, writing about them and then looking at the way like um you know sort of advertisements are being used in one of Atwood's novels and I was like that's interesting that would be a cool activity 
I thought that would be a really fun activity also because I was thinking about like the time, like dates. So what does a perfume cologne ad in the 90s look like versus now? Because my assumption is that that's a kind of media that would be um, where there's still a lot of similarities, right? Where we haven't seen a lot of change um, in terms of like, very feminine, very masculine, like standards in those ads. Um, so I think that could be an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, also, you're pointing out the date again, and I think that is important in thinking about the purpose of this volume if, in what were pedagogical approaches in the 90s versus the 2020s. <laughs> um, you and I have talked a few times about how there's just differences in approaches and that it's the traditional style is that lecture maybe sprinkled in with asking the class some questions, but you're, the students are responding to professor. It's like 20 one-on-one conversations with individual students and the professor all in the same room versus styles of like small group discussions, class activities, um, more in-class writing, group writing, et cetera. And this, like you were saying, is much more geared towards that kind of more traditional style of this is what you'll show your students. This is how you can show your students. Here's a passage you can show your students and break down for your students. Um, at one point, I think I wrote down. So this is teaching me how to interpret the poems. This is telling me what the interpretations of Margaret Atwood's poems are. This is not explaining, discussing how to help my students interpret Atwood's poems. Yeah. It's just giving them the single answer of this is what this poem means. Absorb it. <laughs> yes. And that I did not love um, because all I could think about while it like, sitting with this text was just how massive Atwood's body of work is and how she would be a wonderful, like her work would be a wonderful, um, I can't talk today, like Mark Atwood's work would be wonderful to use in an author class that had some group projects mm-hmm. because for me, I think and we've talked about on the podcast before, like group projects that I've used in lit classes. And I think that those in-class group projects, like the more you have to kind of like sift through and like really treat it as like an investigation, the better, like the, for the mm-hmm. students. And so just because she has so much work. And it's poems, so many genres. Yeah. Yes. Like that's what I was thinking too, right? Um, I was really interested in all the essays that talked about her paintings. Um, and, you know, I would have liked more on, again, on how did you use those um, or how would you use those in class um, other than sort of the kind of really well, of course, there's certain texts that will pair well with certain um, paintings, but what do those activities look like? But but yeah, just so much. Mm-hmm. It, it would be really, really fun to use her as a single author course for exactly the reasons you were saying. But overall, 
I think maybe the initial takeaway for our overall assessment is that it probably succeeded its goals in 1996, but we need an updated issue and we're lucky enough that that's coming soon. Yeah. So I'm excited to read that when it comes out. Yes, me too. Me too. Um, so do we want to talk about... Uh, the structure? Yeah. Um, so for those who have not read this, it the table of contents and the initial preface or intro divides the book into technically two parts, but really, I'd say like five. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you get materials, um, backgrounds, classrooms, a case study, The Handmaid's Tale, and pedagog pedagogical challenges and opportunities. Some of these sections I like better than others. Um, mainly, I've been thinking, I'm not sure what the difference between classrooms and pedagogical challenges and opportunities I, was. Um, I kind of keep going back to those essays, and they all seem to be particular ways you can teach Atwood's work, like through a, through a specific lens or for a specific purpose. Um, and... I don't know. I don't know if I was missing it entirely, like what was separating them. I don't know if it was the same for you or. Yeah, I guess I was, I was just kind of thinking about that. Uh, and I don't know that I really understand what the difference is, if there's a difference. Yeah, I went back through it and it does say that um, in the introduction that four continues part two, just with greater attention. I'm not sure the greater attention is apparent. I did notice that there were some essays that felt like they weren't just for a literature classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, but that really seemed to be for me um, The Handmaid's Tale, though. Like the case study, The Handmaid's Tale seemed to, because um, we've got the essay from a sociology class and then an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, um, and then team taught, right? And then women's college. So actually, I don't know the, the difference between pedagogical challenges and opportunities in classrooms. So maybe they just didn't want to end with Handmaid's Tale. I don't know. But I did yeah. like that they separated out Handmaid's Tale because obviously that's her best known work. That's what most people will be teaching. Um, give the people what they want. Definitely. <laughs> um, but I thought that was, that was useful. Um, and I also really enjoyed that they gave us the section on backgrounds where they were giving us that context because I realized I know Atwood's a Canadian author. Oh, I know man, she yeah. generally participated in some like different movements. I did not know the extent. And that was really helpful in, in not just better understanding Atwood's work for myself, but thinking, oh, these are important things to highlight for students to help them understand um, certain themes, certain images, and, and all that. Well, okay, so I was thinking about um, this keyword literary foremother mm -hmm. that comes in a feminist by another name, Atwood and the Canadian Canon, and 
I really latched onto that and was thinking about it as a lens throughout, um, as like this foremother who is questioning the truth of a lot of canonical works mm -hmm. and asking her reader to question them. Uh, and so I enjoyed background as well with this idea of who is this woman? Um, what do we know about her? And especially like thinking about her as this like literary genius, mm -hmm. right? Um, which is not something that we do as much as we should with women. And um, we've talked about that as well. But I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah. No, but uh, that, that same essay really struck me as well because it made me think about the creation of canons and how the creation of a canon originally was determined by those who, who were writing theory or other authors. But in the 20th century, you get a change to um, canons being determined by professors. What is taught becomes kind of the canonical text, mm -hmm. what, you, what you need to know to know a subject. And, but I really like this attention of how do writers um, participate in the creation of a literary canon? Um, and I know there's a whole lot of discussion about the canon wars in the 80s and 90s, and maybe that's a little bit dated, but it was just interesting to think about, again, like a literary canon is cultural, it's political, it's national, like all of that. And, and but how, is this specific author engaging with that and, and contextualizing their work within that? It made me almost think like, it would be so fun to like pair this with T.S. Eliot. Yes. I keep coming back um, to these ideas um, or these notions of Atwood claiming things or mm -hmm. um, what one essay refers to as like mythic unnaming. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I guess I was also thinking about the amount of work that she has, right. Mm -hmm. And in relation to like this idea of unnaming and like questioning truths of the canon, like it requires a huge amount of work to do that. And so this idea that she's unnaming and and questioning truths and well we haven't talked about um the way she sort of demonized and some of the surveys that they do um mm -hmm. and the fact that she's you know maybe I mean there's the argument that she's writing satire what do you think about that Margaret okay so we had um, The Blind Assassin as one of our book club books recently, our non-literaturally book club. And one of the issues we discussed with The Blind Assassin is that it, to us, failed in a lot of ways because it wasn't funny enough. That we were sort of looking for Atwood's humor and that she's able to cover these dark topics and delve into sort of the monstrousness that exists and, and what we're 
capable of that we don't want to admit but she does this with sort of this wry smile like the handmaid's tale has funny moments like it's funny throughout it's a dark humor but there's this sort of like joking with the audience that happens about certain things like isn't this ridiculous um laugh let's laugh through the pain together laugh so you don't cry and so I do think humor is part of Atwood's work, but I, for some reason, didn't, and I don't know if I do classify it as satire in the way they were discussing satire. It made me, it made me start to think about like, how, how, how do we define satire and modern satire? I don't know. What did you think? Well, I think, um, there was a point where they talked about satire as militant irony. And I think that's that wry smile that you were thinking about. Yeah. Um, and I do think that her work takes on that sort of militant irony. You know, um, the Penelope ad is also a text that's very like dark humor, but is very funny throughout. And so, but I guess... I wonder, I'm also not sure that I would call her a satirist as well. And so I'm wondering, like, why? Why do we, like, what's our distinction here? So I keep thinking that, I think for me, I see satire as this, the undermining of a specific person, concept, law, like whatever, but something specific through humor. Mm-hmm. Whereas Atwood seems to be tackling the whole system. Yeah. And I think that breath that she takes is what makes it difficult for me to see her as a satirist because it's not like she's like, when I think of satire, I know this might be outdated, but I think of like Alexander Pope's Rape of the Lock, where he's satirizing the two families in a feud and using it to make a bigger statement about art and romance, but it's that feud or um oh uh Jonathan Swift with a modest proposal and satirizing the economic policies being enacted against the Irish but these specific they're they're satirizing specific people specific moments um Atwood's tackling all of human history at times and I just patriarchy yeah like Handmaid's Tale yes might be based in Boston, U.S., but she's not looking solely at Boston policy. She's She talks about how she's pulling from events or moments or ideas from all over the world in all different time periods. And so I guess it just makes it hard for me to see that as satire in the same way. And maybe that's because I have a limited understanding of satire. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, so I think there's something there as to why we both feel a little strangely about classifying her this way. Um, And I don't know if it's also just because it is a genre dominated by men. um, And that's part of why we feel that. But I also like that we're talking about like, just how we feel about her, right? Um, Because she is this sort of Um, larger than life figure in a lot of ways and so that makes me think of Lorraine York's essay where she surveys students Mm -hmm. um, 
in terms of like she surveys them in regards to the sort of media myth of Margaret Atwood. Now, I don't know that there's that same media myth of her today in the U.S. I, I That was one of the questions I had was like, well, how has her legacy changed since 96? And like, what are students expecting today? I'd like to see an update to that survey. Exactly. But I think that she could be, it could be interesting to find like, some information from the 90s, right? What were people writing about her, saying about her? What was the sort of popular reception of her? And what does that look like today? And is there a contemporary, right? Is there someone right now who we could make that comparison to, like, in terms of reception? But I'm generally just interested in the fact that when you're teaching an author like a contemporary author, you have that option for surveying for perception. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that that could be um, like pretty interesting in class. But I'm also trying to think about like, who would our students be aware of? That's a good question. And like, who are the literary giants kind of coming into it right now like the people that it's like oh these are the people you need to be reading not because they're fun not because they're being adapted into a movie like not the beach reads but like oh this is the literary novel you should be Mm -hmm. reading because Margaret Atwood did have that prestige attached that it's you're reading them but there it's also like smart person book um that's hard that's a hard question yeah, I keep thinking Helen Oyeyemi, but I think it's primarily just because I really enjoy her right now. And she's also dealing with folklore and, and that right. myth making. But I don't think she has the same sort of pull yet that Atwood has. Um, I'll have to think on that. Um, maybe Britt Bennett eventually. She's only has two novels so far, but I feel like people are discussing her maybe like in similar ways that's totally speculation though yeah that's something we'll have to like research more yeah um while you were talking about the surveying though it made me think of another bit with atwood and satire and then we can move on from satire but atwood like so i think a lot of times we consider satire to be making the ordinary absurd to undermine it Mm-hmm. to point out the ridiculousness of it, to make it seem less logical and less normal. Atwood, though, even as she maybe mocks something or, or makes a joke about it, she always is still humanizing it. Because I was thinking of, oh, A Handmaid's Tale, maybe you can think of like Serena Joy as her satirization of specific women. Um but she does humanize Serena Joy. It's not that you would just walk away laughing at those women thinking, well, aren't they funny? Um, Isn't, um, you know, Tammy Faye Baker ridiculous? That's not the point of what she's doing. And I think there's something there beyond the satire of Atwood really humanizing her subjects even as she maybe opposes the view or or um 
the character, what the character represents. And maybe that's why so many of these essays talk about like Atwood and the other using Atwood for human or for humans or for students to better understand women, for students to better understand um, these, these people, these people, these people. There was like a fair bit on like, how does Atwood help students better understand people in these circumstances and I think that right. speaks to her ability to humanize her topics and subjects yeah I agree and I think also to like I don't want to fangirl too much but not mm-hmm. only does Atwood like humanize people um different groups of people but what I also noticed in this text and then in rereading some of her works is that um, the worlds that she creates, like the environments, like obviously that's something that I'm interested in and um, these sort of alien landscapes, but also like empty lands and bodies and, um, and, and the way that she works to make them come alive um, so that we can understand um, like systems of oppression and how they're like dehumanizing people and also um, destroying places and even not destroying places, but um, disrupting ties to places. And I think that was probably the most interesting part about really thinking about her while reading this as a Canadian author and Mm -hmm. thinking about how Canada is all is can be seen as marginal to us in the U.S. Um, And, you know, what does it mean um, that we've got these questions of like wilderness in some of her text um, and that's not coming from an American viewpoint um and I find that really interesting yeah it it again I know that the volume that's eventually coming out will most likely cover topics like eco-criticism or queer studies which they're all missing from this because it's 96 yeah but I really did like that post-colonialism was still new at this time. So there's a lot of discussion about it, but it was really interesting for exactly what you're talking about. Um, It's sort of that familiar and unfamiliar and defamiliar coming together in a really interesting way in her work, but that um, different places have different relationships with environmentalism, which you know, but the first time I came across that with, was was Terry Eagleton's discussion about um, Irish literature and the way Irish literature presents nature as just sort of like something stark, oppressive, and that's coming out of a history of famine. The, the land will turn against you um, versus a lot of American and British literature, which is, wouldn't it be nice to go for a walk? Oh, to get out of this city and just see some woods? be beautiful some daffodils under the clouds ah um and I never thought about how Canada would maybe not be similar to Ireland but have just a different relationship with the land than the U.S. does and so that was really interesting and 
I think there's something to it that the Atwood text that's most frequently taught in the U.S. is the one that's set in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't think that's like a conspiracy. It's just funny because I, I think most of my students always assume that Atwood's American at first based off Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, and like I'm thinking like, do we spend time correcting that assumption? I talk about it, but briefly, and I'm not sure how much of an impact it has. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know what to do with that. I have a lot of unanswered questions, obviously. (laughs) Well, I have a question for you. Okay. It's going to put you on the spot, maybe. Oh, no. Feel free to mull it over. All right. But what was one of the essays that you found most intriguing or most helpful or like provoked the most ideas from you? I can talk about that. Um, so I really, okay, I really liked um, at Woods, inter, let me get the title right, Intertextual and Sexual Politics by Sharon R. Wilson. Now, I do think that this was one of those texts that sort of pointed us in a lot of directions but did not necessarily give us a lot of here's what you could do with your students. But Mm -hmm. I um, really like this idea of stories embedded within larger stories, creating a play of referentiality and thinking about uh, um, introducing that concept, concept to your students at the beginning of a semester and letting that be sort of your driving force throughout the semester. And I know that that's not, groundbreaking in any way. Um, but using some of these ideas of the meta narratives, the meta fairy tales, um, to think about, um, how, like, there's a quote that says her self-conscious narrators and persona tell the other side of fairy tale, mythic, biblical, literary, popular culture, historical, and life stories. Often the version they and most of us know is only one version anyway. And so I was thinking a lot about uh, the Penelope ad, which wasn't published when this piece was written, Um, but using that and starting there and thinking, you know, back from like Greek, um, myth and and the story of the hero and moving forward um to some of the canonical um store like tales right and then those revisions of them and revisionist approaches to them and even asking students you know what is your meta fairy tale for this text, right? How would you rewrite it? And I think that could be interesting even thinking about Atwood's own work because we've talked about before with The Handmaid's Tale um, and the fact that we have white women in The Handmaid's Tale. And, um, And Margaret, I think that, you know, you have talked about specifically with me, um, like that's on purpose, right? It's not a sort of like second wave feminist overlook, but it's that this world is a white supremacist world and there are no non-white people because of genocide, of right? Um, and so what do we see if we rewrite that text from a per- different perspective with that play of referentiality? And so that was one of my favorite essays um that I want us that I wanted to just like continue to dig into mm-hmm. um yeah no um 
I, I liked that essay as well. I thought it was useful for thinking about intertextuality and being able to read intertextuality as a student. Like, how do we teach that? How do we show them, like, not just to identify a reference or an illusion, yeah. um, but dig into, like, what does that mean? What is that speaking to? What context does that bring? How do we think through the meaning of that? And what happens when you don't know the reference? Because as you're talking about with Handmaid's Tale, students tend to miss that there's been a racial, racist, rather genocide uh, to create Gilead because they don't know the references. So we're told that the children of Ham have been shipped out. They've been sent back to the homelands um, and they don't know that children of Ham refers to black people. And so they just think it's like a religious group that's been sent somewhere. And it's like, no, she's telling us (laughs) that a genocide is going on. Um, And there's other references um, throughout Handmaid's Tale that relies on the reader having that intertextuality. Um, It's a novel that I think on the surface is very approachable, but it's assuming that the reader has a lot of background information, um, which is not a pro or a con, it just is. <laughs> um, and so I think that made me think about how I'm, I want in an ideal world for English majors to have to take a course on intertextuality and like, how do you fit a work, not just with the references that are informing it, that are, are, are um, contained in it, but how to fit it into its milieu. Like what is it maybe accidentally referencing or what is it responding to that it assumes, you know, it's responding to, um, like students today don't know about the feminist pornography debates that were taking place in the eighties. And so they met, they don't understand a lot of those references. And I think that's important to be able to unpack text beyond Atwood, but Atwood is just so dense that she's really great to dig into it with it. Definitely. And in this essay, which is by Sharon R. Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, she gives like, I want to say eight um, sort of intertextual patterns and techniques that she sees in Atwood's work. And I think that those also, um, like you said, are could be broaden to to be applied to text other than Atwood right just to think about intertextuality because intertextual intertextuality gets watered down with our students to okay I've identified that this came from the bible right like an annotation tool versus um something to help us unlock some you know connection or meaning yeah, because even what I what I was just talking about, that's still I'm saying a little bit more than pointing, but I'm just saying it to explain plot. Like we yeah. need to take it even a step further to talk about interpretation <laughs> um, and analysis. And I think that essay was useful to start thinking through how Atwood can be used for that. Um, I also have in my notes for that one. It's on the page looking at me. I have a question written. Do students expect politics to be relatable? And that was a question that kept popping up for me throughout this was that there was a reference to um, like 
students like seeing Atwood's feminism as extreme, uh, students finding her anti-United States sentiments off-putting. Um, and I wonder how that's different from today. Like now, do we expect politics to be disagreeable? Like, yeah. <laughs> or, or is there still an expectation that you want to find the politics relatable, likable, a reflection of you? which there's no real answer for. It just was funny to me how often it was coming up in these essays that she, Margaret Atwood's politics are not likable. Yeah. And I think that is a, is maybe also a little bit of a critique Mm -hmm. um, is that when students were mentioned, it felt like um, how do we make students like this text? And we've talked before that that's not really our goal. I do want students to enjoy things that we read, right, Um, in class. I don't want them to, like, drudge through it and hate it. Um, But I don't know that, like, feeling passionate about something is liking it. Or even personal preference. Like, personal preference does not indicate value, Uh, And so how do we teach students to evaluate works that maybe aren't their preference and, and be able to engage with, with topics that aren't their first choice. Right. Um, And I think those are important skills, but you're right. A lot of times it was like how to get students to care rather than how to teach students skills or I, there was the one I say that, um, it was well and I want students to care right I want to get them to care but I don't but again I kind of go back to like you don't have to like this text or prefer it or like the author or the author's politics to start caring about Mm -hmm. some of the things that are, are coming up here right yeah no I think that's exactly right Margaret what's a text here that you like Oh, so I actually liked the essay that followed the uh, Sharon Wilson's, which was Thomas B. Friedman's um, using Atwood's survival in an interdisciplinary Canadian studies course, because that was the one that really thought through canon formation and 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 um, what is the purpose of literary works and studying liter- literary works. Um, he has a quote near the end where he says, I would agree with Lawson that literary texts are not reflections of life, just as a nation's literature does not necessarily reflect public attitudes or act as a reliable mirror of national sentiment. However, literary works do, particularly when they are elevated to the literary historical and pedagogical canon, exert some influence on the way the country perceives its historical, intellectual, and imaginative development. And so he is looking at this for a, a course on Canadian studies, but it was making me think like, well, what, how would I shape an American studies course? Um, how would I think through canon formation? How would I think through um, creating like a cultural narrative? But I also really liked it because I thought it was useful for considering how to structure a course around a critical volume. So he's using um, Margaret Atwood's um, text called Survival, a thematic guide to Canadian literature, where she's thinking through those same questions. 
And it's him going through the, the themes that she's um, labeling as important for Canadian uh, discourse. And she has essays and he's pairing it with other essays. And I was like, I wouldn't be teaching this class myself, but it shows me how to create a similar class, even if it's not about American studies, but just how do I take a, a critical volume and use it to structure my course? Yes, I agree. I like this essay as well. And I think that it's uh, um, gives some really practical application of how to use a critical text. Which yeah. is something I don't see that often for literary pedagogy. It's a lot about like what these other essays do. Of how do you teach this novel? Mm -hmm. um, and they might reference a critical work, but this was much more grounded in the, the critical. Um, and I just appreciated that other approach. Yeah, I, I also really appreciate that. And I'm just thinking about how we could think through that more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting. I've been trying to come up with what critical volume I would use to teach. Um, the ones that come to brain, I would not actually use because they're all a thousand pages long, <laughs> which is not helpful. Um, so I'd have to spend some time with it, but cause I've always just used individual articles or individual essays as my secondary texts. Yeah. Um, and I have not ever used the secondary text to structure my course. I've used a secondary text, um, Sarah Ahmed's Living a Feminist Life to structure women in literature class. Um, and did your experience like mirror his at all or was it? Well, I know that it's a different topic and all of that. I just was wondering, cause like how he's thinking about like what holes are there in Atwood's um, original text. I and mean, he kind of points out that the way it's dated. So you have to update it, um, mm -hmm. what he would pair it with. Um, were those some of the questions you had to ask? Yeah. Or I think, yes, those were questions I had to ask. Um, and I had to, I wanted to be careful that uh, I wasn't, making any arbitrary connections or like too forced right my own interpretation of the secondary text but because the class was looking at a term from like so we we're thinking about the feminist killjoy and the sort of history of feminism as it plays out in literature um I had to give supplemental text to go with that secondary source. Um, but I don't think that I had, I don't know. I wasn't thinking as much about uh, publication date or any holes because the feminist killjoy figure was Ahmed's like she defined it. She's, yeah, you know, and it was so, recently published. So it wasn't right. like it had become outdated or, yeah, or that there were even that many, yeah. Or even that there were that many responses to it. Well, I, since this collection focuses so much on Handmaid's Tale, it's even in the title. I wanted to, you've, have you taught the Handmaid's Tale in any of your classes? No. And so oh. I know. So I did not teach Handmaid's Tale or Women in Literature. Um, and 
So I wanted to ask you some things about teaching The Handmaid's Tale because I knew you'd done that. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> like, so with the case study, um, mm-hmm. what like what out of that did you latch on to or was there anything out of that that you were like, no, I wouldn't do that? Um, so the two essays I liked most from that were Understanding Contemporary American Culture Through the Handmaid's Tale, a sociology class, which was by Pamela Hewitt, and Teaching Literature Through Film, an interdisciplinary approach to surfacing and Handmaid's Tale. And I think one of the reasons I liked both of those were because they were interdisciplinary, they spent more time um, explaining their terms and exactly why they were using um, literature in this and really kind of walked you through the steps they were taking. And I appreciated that from a pedagogy standpoint. Well, I also really like teaching literature through film and thinking about The Handmaid's Tale and the fact that we have this really poignant series now. Well, yeah. so I used the pilot of the TV show in my class. So when I taught Handmaid's Tale, I used a few different critical texts that I paired it with um, through different semesters. So I would change it up. One was um, Helena Mishy's Not One of the Family, The Repression of the Other Woman in Feminist Theory where it kind of talks about that this idea of sisterhood and feminism emphasizes women supporting women who are similar to them. Like your sister is someone who from his heart looks like you, has the same experiences as you, has the same, comes from the same background as you. And this is, this idea of sisterhood potentially can become problematic because then who are you fighting for when you are fighting for your sisters? Um, but she also talks about how in a lot of activism, there's a distancing from, from difficult topics. So when we talk about things like sexual assault um, in speeches, people will say, my friend experienced this. And you, you, create, you create this other woman who is both made anonymous and sort of used, but then put to the side which I do think there's been a change. This is an older essay. And so the students talk about this, like in the change of the evolution of feminism, um, how we advocate, but it was, it's useful for discussing the power structures in The Handmaid's Tale. And then one of the other texts I used was um, Julia Kristeva's uh, Stop It Mater, which is a hard text. It's a lot about the symbolism of motherhood um, the psychology of motherhood. It, it is dense, but students appreciate it. They would do their presentations on that. Um, but I would also use Evan Narci- uh, Narcissus. Um, he's a cultural writer and it's a short, just online essay called The Biggest Problem with the Handmaid's Tale. And he's talking about the um, show and the, the casting. And so he talks about how it ignores race, that they cast women of color, but they don't change their struggles for them. And that Margaret Atwood in The Handmaid Tale really emphasizes how women from different backgrounds experience patriarchy, experience 
classism, experience oppression in different ways. It's not a one size fits all. And she talks right. about in interviews, it is not a sexist dystopia. And that's what you were referring to earlier that um, she says that for a sexist dystopia, it'd be all men on top and all women at the bottom. But Handmaid's Tale is more complicated that like Serena Joy has more power than Nick, but Nick has more power than Offred. But the uh, captain has the most power of them all. <laughs> um, but to work through that. Um, and so it was a class discussion that we had after watching Handmaid's Tale. We talked about the adaptation. Um, and then we discussed if it's not enough to just cast people of color in these roles that you have to write differently. How could else we adapt it that we're not just creating a white, the picture of a white dystopia, because that's not what Atwood's trying to do. Um, but how, how would you tell these stories? And I think that was something you were saying earlier. Um, and I think that would be a really useful assignment, um, especially for a creative writing class of how, whose stories aren't told. So like my students talked about, and this was just class discussion, it wasn't a project, but that maybe you have like the perspective of an I who is trans and, and, but not out and, and trying to go through and dealing with that or um, Catholics who are in hiding, um, being hidden by like Quakers somewhere or, um, and, and people, the children of Ham being shipped out and maybe someone being left behind or et cetera. And you can tell these stories and still kind of look to one, how, different people have different experiences in the same culture. And so how do we re reflect that in our cultural works? But two, what techniques do we do to create this without further erasing? Because it's, it's not enough to just assign an ethnicity or identity to something and say, well, now it's diverse. Now it's representative because that's mm -hmm. not enough. And that's not what Atwood's trying to do. Um, yeah. But I think that's an important conversation for students to have today as we talk about um, representation and, and how can representation be made ethical or unethical. And, and, and especially in the, strat the um, communication strategies we use, whether it's literary, film, whatever else. Yeah. But so that, that was fun to see like the film. Also, sorry, now I'm just rambling. No, no, no. Keep but going. <laughs> I don't know like when what was known when this came out but apparently the film version that they're referring to the handmaid's tale they, they talk about this a little bit that it wasn't commercially successful and it wasn't critically right. successful but it underwent a lot of changes so while they were filming it it was supposed to have a voiceover and then before it came out they decided no they were going to get rid of the voiceover so people talk about like well the acting's so wooden like all of that and it's like well she was acting with the assumption you were going to have her voice over, like explaining yeah. everything. But also I feel like the voiceover would have been interesting thinking about the tapes and who's telling the narrative and a lot of what they were talking about um, being erased from the narrative. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and I just talked with my students about that, like these sorts of um, rhetorical choices that are made and how it affects narrative um and interpretation and, and themes but i think it would be really interesting to do an adaptation course with all of this yeah. um, absolutely lots to unpack 
So that was fun to consider. And I feel like you could keep looking for adaptations of The Handmaid's Tale, right? Mm -hmm. Like not like not just mainstream adaptations, like but what have people individually done to adapt this text? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, even like SNL or audiobooks, like other professional endeavors as well as fan-made content. So would that be your dream course, Margaret? Oh, um, so I think my dream course for today is actually going to be on using Atwood as a theory class Mm -hmm. where read different um, seminal theories and pair them with her short stories or poems, like individual short stories or poems. And then the final unit of the course, you read one of her novels and the students pick one of the critical theories you learned about that semester and apply it to that novel okay. and, see how it, and evaluate it accordingly. Ah, uh, that's so good. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting where they can dive deep into an author, they get the lay of the land of um, crit- like critical theory, but also building the skills to do it themselves, not just little sponges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what about you? What's your dream course? Um, I want to teach a class with Atwood where the sort of running theme is this idea of empty lands. Um, and so moving from like wilderness, um, to like post-apocalyptic. And I think I'd actually start with a text like the year of the flood. Um, and I want to think about how, um, all of the female characters are kind of deemed as like these vessels, um, and they take on whatever, their environment um, dictates to them. And so it's both about how they adapt to survive, but also how um, in the time of disaster, um, like women become like the commodity um, for their bodies, for their ability to reproduce. And so in the same way that the environment is like this sort of, um, well, it it is this commodity or good. And so I want to, I think I would be do like looking at these representations of women and like environments, natural environments specifically and how they pair up and how, um, they contrast as well. That would be really cool. I feel like there's so much more to talk about with Atwood. So I look forward to talking about Atwood some more with you at a future point. Yes, which is the plan. Yeah. 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 Wait, wait, and I have one last question before you go. So I'm going to, your next Atwood book that you're going to read is? Alias Grace. Okay. What about yours? I think I'm going to read Mad Adam because I read The Year of the Flood and I haven't read Mad Adam. I needed a break after The Year of the Flood. Like, not a break from her because I'm also reading Alias Grace, but I had to have a break from that world. Mm-hmm. That's world. fair. Yeah. Also, just to kind of wrap up, this is the finale of season two. It is. So we'll see you all in season three. We're making plans for it now. We'll be off for a little while and um, you can follow us Instagram is literally podcast 
Twitter is literally 101 um, and we'll be putting updates for season three there. So stay tuned, get psyched. We have really exciting things planned. Yeah, awesome. And you can always like email us and tell us something you want us to do. Um, and we'll we'll be open to that. To yeah, I think our, the fan submitted episode for this season was one of my favorites. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So, Till next time. Yeah.